transform them by his grace. When I was a kid, I moved to Huntington, West Virginia. And I had lived in Richmond, Virginia until the fourth grade, and we moved into our new neighborhood. And there in our new neighborhood was Joe Hooper. He was the consummate bully. He loved to intimidate and threaten, and he was a kid that was held back a couple of times, kind of a troubled kid. And I was a kid that was a runt. Before I hit my growth spurt, I was a lot smaller than I should have been. And because of that, I was bullied. But you know, the bullying wasn't just a kid asserting dominance over another kid. A lot of it had to do with my faith. As a matter of fact, Joe would often utter as blasphemous a joke about God or word about God as he possibly could. He would actually take alcohol and stick it in my face and tell me unless I took a drink, he was going to pound me. And I took a lot of poundings because of it. So standing for my faith, even as a young child, was something that was difficult. And as I looked at, at Joe and I was intimidated by him, there was this constant temptation to give in. But the Holy Spirit inside of me was saying, no, you stand and you take whatever's dished out and you live in obedience. And so I did. Well, later, as I was an adult, Paula and I came in to see my folks. And by this time, I had a couple of kids and we were all carrying stuff into the house. And I'm going back for another trip to the car. You know how it is when you go anywhere with kids. Lots of stuff. So I go back to the car, and who should walk up from the neighborhood but Joe Hooper? But there was something different about him. I looked at him, and he had on a white shirt with a New Testament in his pocket. And so he comes up and says, Rob? And I said, Joe? By now, I was much larger than him. <laughs> so not very afraid, you know. So I said, hey, uh, How's it going? And he started to share with me how he had found a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he proceeded to ask forgiveness for the way he had treated me. Now, if you had asked me as a kid, will Joe Hooper ever come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I would have laughed. I would have said, he hates God. He wouldn't respond no matter who came and shared with him. If God himself appeared to Joe Hooper, he'd say, yeah, right. And yet, what did God do? Transform him. I can understand the story of Saul so well because of the experience that God gave me to develop me and help me understand what it is to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, but also what it is to see a life completely and radically changed. And that's what happens with Saul in this passage. This morning, we want to start by looking into the mind of a persecutor. And we see that Saul was personally committed to wiping out the way. In other words, those who followed the way, the truth, and the life, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a personal vendetta against the church. And what we find as we come to Acts chapter 9, this first verse, is that Saul begins by 
uttering murderous threats. And they just poured forth from his mouth. Look at how Luke frames this in the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. We see the gospel expanding. We see that the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and even the Ethiopian eunuch who went down to Ethiopia to share the gospel. The gospel is moving forward, but in response to the gospel progressing, we have persecutors who make it their personal vendetta to stop it, and Saul was the chief of those persecutors. He was personally committed to wiping out any memory of Jesus and any follower who would utter his name. He found the name of Jesus Christ to be detestable. He resented it. He believed with all of his heart that it was wrong to worship this rabbi named Jesus. So anything that he could do to discourage or to crush those who would follow Jesus, he was on board. In fact, later in Acts, when Paul was giving his testimony, he shared this. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I I lost my place looking at a different screen. <laughs> On the authority of chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Do you see the intensity of Paul's anger and hatred toward Jesus Christ and toward his followers. He wanted to crush Christianity. He wanted to stop it dead in its tracks. And yet, God was able to take this horrible sinner and transform him. Look at these words from Paul. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. What a wonderful testimony! What a great transformation! This one who mouthed murderous threats turned by the grace of God. We see Paul further discussed by Luke in the second verse, and we find that malicious zeal absolutely drove him. When we look in the second verse, right at the end of the first verse, it says, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Do you see what he was doing? He was chasing after the church, not content to drive them out of Jerusalem. He decided to pursue them wherever they went. And what he did to accomplish that is amazing. Saul was a Pharisee. 
In the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees were over the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees were not very happy about going to them and asking for permission to do anything. And yet, Saul so hated followers of Jesus Christ, he was willing to do that. He went to them and he asked for permission to pursue them outside the boundaries of Jerusalem. And that's just what he did. He went after them with zeal. Why? Because he believed in his heart that what he was doing was right. Now this is something that we need to understand about this persecutor. Paul was zealous because he had an object of faith that was not true. Was Paul sincere in that faith? You better believe it. His sincerity moved him to action. He believed with all of his heart that Jesus was not truly the Messiah, that he was not God. So with every ounce of his energy, he wanted to crush the faith that others had in Jesus. He viewed Jesus as one who was a false teacher, leading many astray. And so, with all of his heart, with all of his faith, he lived his religion, which would have required him to crush one who stood up and said they were the Messiah, that they were God. We find Paul's own testimony about this in the book of Philippians when he said this, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul's mission was to wipe out those who believed in Jesus Christ, those followers of the way, to stop them dead in their tracks. And he did it with all of the zeal of a zealot who believed with all of his heart that what he was doing was right. And here's the issue about faith that we need to grasp in this. It isn't the quality of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. There are many who will say, hey, as long as you're sincere and you believe something, then that'll get you into a relationship with God, even if it's wrong. Just believe it hard enough, and God will accept that. No. Was Saul sincere about what he was doing? With every ounce of his energy, he was sincere. But he was sincerely wrong. He had bought in to a system of belief that required legalistic actions. If I can perform, if I can do all that God tells me to do, then God will look at me and He'll accept me because I've worked hard enough for God to find favor in me. That's what Paul means when he says here that he put confidence in the flesh. He counted on his personal performance to win and curry favor with God. But something changed. When Saul became Paul, something transformed him. And later in that same testimony, he would say this, 
Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What changed Saul? Coming face to face with the real Jesus, the true Jesus. No longer counting on himself. No longer looking and saying, I can be good enough for God to receive me. But understanding with all of his heart that he needed to recognize Jesus for who he is and stop fighting against him. And that brings us to our next point. The mercy and grace of God can transform anyone. When we continue in Luke's account and we come to the third verse, we find a pivotal change in this story. We find that God makes us aware of the seriousness of our sin. And that's the first step in recognizing that we need to turn to Jesus. And that's what happens with Saul. Look at that third verse. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now many look at this and we see in this uh, a statement by Jesus that is theologically significant, that Jesus associates himself with the church. That as Saul was persecuting the church, in reality, they are so united with Christ, they were persecuting Christ, an important perspective. But I don't think that's the thrust of this passage. I think the main point of this passage is Jesus was calling Saul to consider his sin. Saul had to recognize that in persecuting the followers of Christ, ultimately persecuting Christ, he had sinned against God. Here was Saul thinking with all of his heart, hey, what I'm doing is right and good. I'm doing God's work. Was in reality sin against God. And you know, there are many people who look at their sin today and they rationalize it. Or they buy into something that says that sin isn't really sin. And in sincerity, they pursue that course, but they're sincerely wrong. And they need to come face to face with the fact, I have sinned against God. And that's where Saul had to come to. He had to lay aside all of that righteousness that he thought that he had and come to terms with the fact that he was a sinner. Later, in Acts chapter 26, he says this, about noon, O king, and he was sharing his testimony. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute 
me, and again, a little bit more explanation given in, in Saul's testimony, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul was sharing in his testimony this pivotal moment when he came face to face with his sin. He was guilty of the very blasphemy that he accused others of. Again, Paul's words, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He came face to face with his sin recognizing himself as a sinner, but also recognizing the mercy and the grace of God. And that's what changed him. That recognition of God's mercy, God's grace. Look at this text as as we go on. When Saul heard the voice of the Lord say, why do you persecute me? Notice verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And then look at Jesus' response. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Think about what must have transpired with Saul in that moment. I hate the name of Jesus. A voice says, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response, "Who, who are you, Lord? At that moment, I don't think think that Saul recognized that Jesus was Lord in the sense that we think of Jesus as Lord. I think he recognized that there was a greater being. He didn't know who he was addressing. He just knew that there was one superior to himself. Some take this passage and say, oh, he's just saying sir and being polite. I don't think so. What I think is a recognition that this is Adonai of the Old Testament, Lord, God. This is one greater than myself. And in his response to this deity and asking, who are you? Imagine what he felt when that voice identifies himself as Jesus. I have invested every ounce of my energy, every bit of my zeal into wiping out the name of Jesus. And I've been wrong. Now, the risen Messiah is addressing me and telling me of my sin. And this name that I have hated, I have been completely wrong in hating that name. Imagine how that would crush your spirit to come to that realization in that moment that the one that I hated is Messiah, God, risen. The people that I've been persecuting have been right all along. The Jesus that my people have hated is the one that I should worship and adore. Imagine how his world came crashing down on him in that moment when he heard Jesus. That's what Saul responded with. His life had been invested in the wrong things. And yet, look at verse 6. Jesus continues to speak to him. 
Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Jesus gave him immediate instructions because as we're going to see, he had great plans for Saul. When we come to verses 6 through 9, we find this message that I just read. Go to the city and you will be told what to do. He was to wait on God. And you know what's amazing to me as we look at verses 6 through 9 is the mercy of God. The way God in His patience and mercy can take a broken vessel and turn it into something good, something wonderful. Saul, who persecuted the church, loathed Jesus, would become a proclaimer of the gospel and would love Jesus. A huge transformation. Look at verse 7, and we see the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. So they're able to hear something, but they're not able to see anything, and yet there's this glorious presence of the Lord. And then look at verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Amazing. For the first time, he saw spiritually, but now for a moment, for a time, he could not see physically. And so what happened? They led him by the hand into Damascus. And then look at verse 9. For three days... He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, perhaps Saul was fasting and preparing himself spiritually for what would happen next. But I wonder if it's not sincere grief for his sin that brought him to the place of fasting. That recognition that I have invested my life in horrible things, evil things, things that stand against the purpose and the plan of God. This has been what I have directed my life toward. God, though, had a purpose and a plan for Saul. That brings us to our next point. God moved Saul from being a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel. And as we come to the next part of this passage... Look at verse 10. And in verse 10, we're introduced to Ananias. And we find a mandate to Ananias to to go and minister to Saul. And to him, that was initially frightening. Look at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. What we find in this text, I think, is, again, God intervening. God doesn't reach everyone by visions. He doesn't communicate to everyone by visions. But in this case, this was such a pivotal point in the church that God chose to do that. And so here is Ananias. He's being addressed by the Lord. And notice the last part of the 10th verse. He responds when God calls his name. He says, yes, Lord. And then look at verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, when we read this in the narrative, we think, okay, yeah, I'll leave, go over to Straight Street, the house of Judas, see Saul. No big deal. This is part of the narrative. But I want you to think about what Ananias would have felt. If somebody had told me as a kid, go see Joe Hooper, I said, no way, I avoid that guy. I've had enough poundings to know that he has not my best interests in mind, and, and I'll just steer clear. As a matter of fact, I can remember as a kid, you know, hiding behind shrubs, looking around to see if he's around, and then darting to the next shrub and waiting uh, to, to, to have the coast clear so I could make it home. And probably that's some of what Ananias was feeling right here, right now. You want me to go see Saul? But look at Jesus. He says, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. He's letting Ananias in on the truth that something has happened to Saul. I have spoken to him. Now, I love Ananias' response in that 13th verse. Um, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Isn't it interesting? Yes, Ananias is a disciple of the Lord, and yet when the Lord gives him a directive, he still has this response of, is that really what you want me to do? Are we talking about the same Saul? It's almost that Jonah response, right? When Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, Jonah was like, yeah, Nineveh, not, not there. No, thank you. Ananias is wondering, am I really getting this message straight? Are we talking about the same Saul? But then look at verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. That brings us to our next point. God was going to do something spectacular in the life of Saul. And part of that required the obedience of Ananias. God had a purpose and a plan that was unfolding. But he included Ananias in that purpose and that plan, in that mission for Saul. So here is Ananias after he questions this and after he gets the answer from the Lord. And I love the Lord's direct answer. He didn't go into, yeah, that's, that's the one I'm talking about. He just said, go. You just go. Be obedient. You know, we can't always understand everything that God's doing, can we? We can't always come to that place where we look and we say, okay, now I see what God's doing here. I see the whole plan unfolding. Sometimes obedience requires just trust and walking by faith and not by sight. And so that's what Jesus was calling Ananias to do right here. But then look at what Jesus says about Saul to Ananias. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, think for a moment about what this is saying to us in terms of God's grace. This 
one who harmed the people of God. And I don't think we can appreciate enough how intense Saul's persecution of the church was. We can't begin to imagine the venom that spewed from him toward the people of God. And yet, here is God in his grace reaching one who had done such atrocities to the people of God and opening the way for him to be a champion of the gospel, to share the truth that Jesus transforms lives. Look at some of the things God would ask him to do here in the 15th verse. He would carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles. Now, that first word just leaps off the page at you if you understand Pharisees. Gentiles to Saul were subhuman. They were dogs. They were to be hated. They were to be opposed. And yet, God is sending him to the very people that he hated most in the world next to Christians. And then he would go before kings and then before his own people. Can you imagine the reaction of the so-called spiritual leaders of Israel? The religious leaders seeing their champion turned to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Those were difficult conversations to have. And yet this is what Christ was calling him to. And then look at the 16th verse. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The job description out of the gate for Saul was that he would suffer to promote the truth of the gospel. I would encourage you later, go and read 2 Corinthians. If you're taking notes, jot this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. A catalog of what Saul suffered. Beatings, shipwrecks, stoning. Horrible, horrible persecution and suffering that he faced for the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, this is what Paul would later say. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is a man who was changed from persecutor to persecuted because of his faith. Then finally we come to verses 17 through 19, and we find him made ready for God's service. Look at verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Look at this change in Ananias. Brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately... Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul experienced the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit 
he experienced immediately the presence and ministry of God's church. And then he identified himself with that church. Listen, as a Pharisee, Saul understood what baptism meant. He understood that it was a personal testimony to the community that I am leaving behind my affiliation with the Pharisees and those who have rejected Christ and I am aligning myself with the one that I persecuted. I am changing teams, changing sides, and this is my testimony to all that I'm doing it. And that same testimony is shared when we follow the Lord in baptism. And as we've gone through Acts, we've seen it again and again and again, haven't we? Where people follow the Lord in baptism and they make that statement, I am now following Jesus. And this is my testimony and my accountability to the church body that I'm doing so. And Saul did that very thing. This morning, we've seen the power of God to change. Saul didn't change himself. He didn't reform. He was radically transformed by the grace of God. God reached him in his sin. Saul understood that he was in sin. That the faith that he had had been a misdirected faith. And that he needed to believe in the true object of faith, Jesus Christ. And when he stopped believing in his own personal performance and righteousness and started believing in Jesus the Messiah by his own testimony that we read in other passages of Scripture, he came to faith and was transformed. As a pastor, I've witnessed to many people and they'll say, I'm too lost to have God consider me. I've done too much. How could God forgive me for the things that I've done? And all you have to do is take them to the life of Saul. One who persecuted the church, one who saw to the deaths of followers of Christ, one who tried to fight against God with all of his strength in the person of Jesus Christ. All of his strength he fought against Christ who is God. And yet, God forgave him. And that's the wonder of God's grace, isn't it? God's grace can take the most corrupt, the most defiled, the most depraved human and change them. That's the hope of the gospel. So I would encourage you this morning, if you've never turned from your sin to God, The same God who changed Saul can change you and will change you if you embrace what God freely offers by His grace. Turn from your sin to God. Recognize Jesus as the one who died for you and rose again. And when you embrace what God offers you, that forgiveness and a relationship with God, having eternal life, when you trust in the grace of God, you can experience what Paul shares with us. He experienced. And it's freely offered to any who will embrace that truth.
Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you 